Welcome to the Optimist Futures Podcast, a place to learn from an industry insider with over 20 years of experience in commodity futures and options. Gain insight to the newest technology, platforms, risk management, trading philosophy, and advice about the current state of the futures and options markets. For futures trading platforms, deep discounts trading commissions, overnight margins, and instructional videos, feel free to visit our website at optimistfutures.com. Please remember that this matter should be viewed as a solicitation to trade. Trading futures and options involves substantial risk of loss and is not suitable for all investors. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results. You should therefore carefully consider whether such trading is suitable for you in light of your financial condition. Optimist Futures LLC is not affiliated with, nor does it endorse any trading system, methodologies, newsletter, or similar service. We urge you to conduct your own due diligence. Now, here's your host, founder and CEO of Optimus Futures, Matt Zimberg. Hello, everyone. I have uh, Jack Schwager here with me again. So a round of uh, applause. There we go. Welcome, Jack. Um, Thank you for being here. And just for... Everybody else who's joining us on this, I wanted to uh, explain what was my motivation um, for doing this podcast and specifically bringing Jack again. So one of the things that Jack does, he helps the retail traders like nobody else. Uh, First of all, he's very honest about what it takes to succeed in this difficult business. He always and he always shares with everybody all the trade secrets that he has, not hiding anything. And this is the 100th podcast of Optimus Futures. So I thought it would be really great to bring you here again. This is the book of unknown market wizards. And I really recommend this book. Um, I will post a link to Amazon for everybody to purchase it um, and, and read it. What I would say is just read this book in its entirety. Here's what I've done. I've first listened to this book, and then I've read this book, and then I went back to the end of each chapter and highlighted the most important things. And I'll tell you, if you'll do that, you'll discover a world of secrets out there, if I can call it secrets, of what successful traders do. You might not get it the first time around from reading it, but if you listen to the book, read the book, and then go back to it, you you will see that you will observe a lot more. Jack, I love the format of this book very much. I think you've, it's just, I can tell how much effort you put into not only doing the interview, but then writing your own conclusions about each author. Um, and then basically also adding their observation of themselves and your observation of them, which is phenomenal format. And I'm gonna tell you something, I think really, this is the best Market Wizards book that you've written so far. I've enjoyed the first two, but this one gives me more than anything hope for the retail trader. If they apply themselves, they can succeed. And I'm not downplaying the risk of trading as a licensed broker, but instead I'm encouraged that there are people out there that don't just go to forums 
in Reddit threads and just put all their money in one option and blow it up, but just people that are methodical. So again, highly recommend to get this book and go back to it as much as possible. Okay, Jack, we're going to start with a few questions here. I know you're a very busy individual, so anytime you just want to cut off this interview, you let me know because I have a lot to talk about. So the first question um, that I have is this. What did you find in common with all the successful traders? So as a group, I know each one of them is unique, but what did you find in common to all of them together? Methodology-wise, they're obviously very different. Although in this book, there are a few traders who, who use a similar approach, which is coincidental because at one time in their careers, they happened to be at the same prop shop and knew each other. But generally speaking, it's safe to say that the methodologies do range dramatically across across the board. But what just about, I guess, all of them have, um, is with one, maybe one, one exception where it's not the primary thing, but the most common denominator is goes back to risk management. And you'll see chapter after chapter how critical the risk side is to everything they do. Um, and, and I think another thing is in this book particularly, you find a lot of the traders um, are very self-aware, um, a lot of introspection, a lot of analysis of what they what they do right, what they do wrong, what their emotions are at the time they trade, uh, concentration on getting very much into focus when they're trading, uh, relaxation techniques. To, to eliminate all the distraction and emotion. So the psycho psychological aspect really does, not for every trader, but I think this book more so than a number, than some of the other books, where it's always important, but I think in this book, maybe more so than in, the, in, in any other market wizard book, that that psychological element is in the forefront. I see. And so they obviously have a certain way that they think, a certain way they behave. From what you gathered, were they successful at something before they approached trading? Were they already, and I'm not saying necessarily successful financially, but were they in other fields that made them this way? So if a person, what I'm getting at, if a person's first risky adventure is trading. How likely is he to succeed if he didn't bring a discipline with him from a different profession? And if he is, you know, if, if, if trading is his first uh, risky adventure, what would you tell such a person? Well, in the majority, I'm just scanning some of the chapters. In the majority of cases, sure. these, these people started out as traders. And that's kind of, and more and more so than is typical. Um, although they were not immediately, some of them were immediately successful. Some were, some failed, uh, but it, you know, and then came back again. But a lot of them, most of them, didn't have careers before the trading. 
trading was their their first career. No exceptions. The the systematic trader um, really fell into trading because he was a successful software developer. So uh, and was of a company that got acquired. He used that as his trading stake. Um, but none of the traders had uh, other traders had. Well, well, one trader in a brand was uh, was in advertising, had a successful career in advertising. Uh, but most of them just really trading was was the first thing they did. Uh, and, you know, and, and I think Chris Camillo also had a career in kind of uh, market research type of thing, where he was doing well, but I would you know not not you know an incredible success. Not not when he's uh, uh, he was earning a good living, but. That's about it, you know. So, uh, none of them was spectacularly successful in other careers before doing that, and the majority trading was their initial, their initial uh, career. Um, classic example. That's, that's like, encouraging. Yeah, like somebody like Jeff Newman, who has probably the most spectacular record. Um, I mean, defying all reason and logic, graduated college. Never looked for a job and decided he wanted to be a trader. Now, I think most people will not succeed that way, but he succeeded spectacularly well. So I guess that's possible. Okay. Well, that's, like I said, it's very encouraging uh, that people can actually start out a trading, make the, the mistakes that they do, fix those mistakes, develop a process, go forward with it. That's, that's really good. So you talk to a lot of retail traders. Um, they come to you, they obviously probably ask you, how can I be successful in it? What do I do? And everything else. So what do you find that this unique group of people, that they're exceptional at what they do and definitely don't represent, you know, the typical retail trader? But what would you say in terms of approach that the retail trader does on a large scale that those guys don't do? You know, how how do they different in their day-to-day, in their approach, in, the, in their outlook, in their spontaneous reactions? You know, how, how do they different in their nature? Uh, they're different in, that by and large, they're, as a group, very, very disciplined. Very disciplined, you know. So, uh, uh, and discipline means a couple of things. It means uh, doing, like, a tremendous amount of work the, as part of the preparation for trading. So, like, every, you know, writing down notes uh, on every trade they take and and things like that. And literally, one, a couple of traders bringing to me binders of, of of their notes on trading that they've accumulated and their experiences and all that. Literally thousands of pages, you know, uh, and reviewing them. Um, they, or, or developing the system over years of hard work, if it's a system, uh, partially systematic approach, um, they, the discipline also comes across in the risk management side because uh, like some of these traders will, when they have high confidence on a trade, they will take a very large position. And the only way you can survive that is you if you never make a mistake about delaying when you're wrong. So they have the discipline to just if, if it doesn't go their way, they're out very quickly. So that's another uh, that's another dimension of discipline. Um, so that's 
that's kind of uh, one major aspect. Uh, I think the work they do as a group is probably more intense than typical retail traders do. They develop their own methodology. They're not, they're not asking other people what to do. They're, they've developed a particular approach that really works for them, and that's it. And they don't care whatever people say or, or do. Um, they don't try to get other people's opinions. Um, like the most common, the most common, uh, you know, type of question I will get sometimes to people by email is like, uh, can you, can you tell me what the best approach is? Or, uh, or can, can you tell me somebody I can train under? People are, the typical retail trader is looking for someone to give them uh, this this magical approach, money machine on, on a silver tray, instead of doing all the work themselves, instead of developing something themselves, they're looking for a handout. You know, a handout of here's how you do it. You know, and that's the wrong. That's just the wrong mentality. Um, if you can be successful as a trader, you just have to develop your own approach. Um, and even the traders where in my various Margaret Wizard books, where they might have mentored with someone else, it's never that they mentored and that's the approach they used. They may have learned some stuff, but they but they didn't trade that way. They still traded their own way. They may have learned certain aspects from some other trader uh, or seen that it was possible to succeed, but they didn't get their methodology by copying another trader. That's, uh, I, I can appreciate, you know, we, we were, myself, I'm also being approached, uh, being asked the same question. Um, I always try to convey to people that their nature will play a very big role in the application of the risk management. Um, they're trying to duplicate somebody else's nature, risk management approach. It never works. You know, I could never explain to somebody 100% how I think about the markets, both because I think a lot of people not be able to adjust it from a risk management perspective to think the way I am, but also conveying to somebody something that comes to you as second nature of your risk management. That's the part they don't understand. That's the part where they work with their what. God gave them his DNA, you know, which is really to max out your losses and minimize your profits. That's the majority of what we're gifted with. And to go against it, yes, it takes a lot of hard work. It takes a lot of, it takes a lot of exercise. And like you said, a lot of note-taking and observation of your own behavior. So that leads me to the next question. Obviously, you know, before on the other two market wizards, you... The people that were there were successful traders. These people are retail traders, as I call. The, you know, they, they sit there, their own monitors, their own screens. They apply their own method. You probably had some sort of inclination of what those people are like. Is there something that after all those years of being in the business, after you interviewed those people, surprised you about their personality and approach? in terms of risk management, psychology, or anything else? Or was it pretty much in line with what you anticipated? Yeah, well, the biggest surprise um, was when I did this book, 
I thought, not because they're like solo traders sitting in their home trading and not managing other people's money, although one, one of the traders does manage them on other accounts, but um, but by and large, your you know, image of a solo trader, they're not hedge fund managers with staffs and stuff like that. I hadn't interviewed in every Margaret Wizard book. I always had some solo traders, but this is the first time I, well, except for hedge fund market wizards, where it was by, as the name would suggest, it was basically hedge funds. But um, here, because it was, uh, you know, the, the, all the traders were solo, but that wasn't the reason I thought, uh, I didn't think that was going to be a big difference because I thought whatever the elements of success were, weren't so much dependent upon whether the person was trading sort of on their own, hidden from everybody, or whether they were managing money. Um, the biggest surprise really was in how well, how, how well these traders performed after a period of decades, maybe, where we've seen this tremendous quantification and computerization of trading. So you go back to the first couple of market wisdom books, those, those traders were not, I was speaking to them in the late 80s, right? So their careers were 60s, 70s, 80s, but a lot of trading career was, I mean, we had PCs in, in 88, but, um, you know, I think PCs came on a horizon in any meaningful way, only in the beginning of the 80s, probably. So most of their careers were not only pre, you know, this massive quantification in trading, but it was before even the PC. So since that time, you've had, you know, an extraordinary increase in computer power, but also an extraordinary increase in, uh, well, now, if you talk about just the ordinary trader, you and I or anybody else, on an ordinary PC, you have access to, you know, a lot of power, much more power than you would have had on a, on a, on a mainframe or something back in, back, say, in the 60s or 70s. And... Um, we have access to all sorts of data. I mean, the amount of data that's available. I mean, there was no intraday data. There was no, all this, in terms of fundamentals, access to all these different uh, types of uh, data. So you think with all of that, plus you have firms such as Renaissance and, and the and firms like that, many firms, where you have literally, you might have 100 PhDs of math, math or physics or or computer science degrees working to beat them, you know, come up with methodologies to beat the market, plus plus super supercomputing power. And you think of all of that, it would become much more difficult for the same solo trader to really, you know, maybe beat the benchmarks, but to do extraordinary would seem to be unlikely. So my biggest surprise was simply that the track records some of these traders had uh, were actually not only as good, but I think in some cases maybe even better than the, than the traders I had in the original Market Wizards books, where I thought those traders, well, they were phenomenal, but, okay, so this, they were kind of early on, this was in the period where, like I say, people weren't very sophisticated. Uh, I remember like Ed Sakota who was one of the first, you know, very, very first people to be using systematic trend following uh, talk. I mean, it was so, he had a, an exponential moving average system. 
which is no big deal. It was pretty straightforward, but it was so new that people didn't even, they would call it the exponential, not exponential. They didn't even know what he was talking about. But right. he was, because he was early on, uh, and we had great trends that, that, you know, that, you know, gave him these massive returns. Um, and, and the other traders too, like people like Marcus, that, that wasn't systematic, but he was great at exploiting these trends. And, and, uh, he would talk about how, how, uh, you know, he would go in and, and catch something and get a move and, and like, you know, a week or two, you know, after the move gone, you know, the, the dentists of the world would come into the trade. So, you know, they just were, they had the advantage of being professional traders in a world that was filled with amateurs. And so I thought that was part of it. Um, so I didn't expect to get phenomenal track records when I did this book. And I, I was surprised how good these people had done. That's... Uh... That is and you know what? I'm, that's encouraging, and at the same time, I'm happy for them. I'm happy that they can take, you know, ideas that are beyond theoretical and actually apply them and do better than all those PhDs. You know, um, it's interesting. And, you know, and the no, lesson there is it's still possible. That's <clears throat> that's the big lesson that despite all these changes that have gone on and all, the increase. Of professionals in the in, in the trading world, that it's still possible for the for the solo trader to still do extraordinary well. Now, not everybody's going to do that. It's going to take a special type of talent and skill and emotional control and of course. a lot of things. But it's possible. That's maybe the the biggest lesson. That's that's the one thing that really encouraged me after reading this book of giving people resources of information of good decision-making. You know, I, I always change my advice to customers every few years, how to go about being better at this business. And in the last few years, I've been telling them, you just have to be a better decision-maker. It first starts with good decision-making. And I think the traders in your book are just good decision makers. They're, they're good. Like you said, they don't listen to anybody else, which is exactly the opposite of what majority of people do. You know, the forums, you know, trading forum exists. The whole existence of for, forums is people feeding off each other's weaknesses, giving each other's bad advice on an ongoing basis. You know, is unsuccessful traders giving each other advice how to overcome things. Well, these guys, you know, in your book are silent. Like you said, they don't go anywhere. They don't write anything. They don't communicate with anyone. So the it, it's very hard to get that sort of information to say, look, uh, somebody can publish something this big on the forum, right? And an amateur would read it and say, wow, he's so smart. I should follow it. Meantime, it's just hypothetical and theoretical nonsense that is not applicable in the real world. Reading it will make you a little bit smarter for a cocktail party. It does not mean you can apply it, you know, in the real market. So, so I, I, I can appreciate everything that, that you're saying about their personality. One thing that I've noticed in the book, which really made me very curious, uh, 
You know, I, I've been telling people all the time, look, and, and maybe it's the right advice and maybe this is something they've mastered, but I've noticed some traders would once in a while deviate from their risk and reward methodology on a day-to-day -day and would sometimes take larger positions that they usually would. Now, I don't know if this is something that everybody should do, but the ones who have done it and are successful, how, how do you account for the fact that somebody can actually deviate from his risk and reward and still be successful? Because I, would I just think, I found uh, it. I wouldn't, describe, yeah, I wouldn't describe it that way. They're not actually deviating okay. from their risk reward. Um, this that is part of their methodology. Part of methodology in the traders you talk these particular traders, not all the traders, but there's a probably correct, three correct. that I think that fit that model. And, and in that case, their their part of their methodology is to trade to trade small. Or not at all, except when when there's a very high confidence trader. In fact, one trader who I call, actually I call, he actually um, said that he's been called that, and I I thought it was a perfect description what he does. And the title of that chapter is the unicorn sniper, and it's the idea that he's looking, he's waiting for the unicorn, that almost perfect trade. And there aren't a lot of unicorns in the year. And what he tries to do is really avoid the temptation of trading or keeping his trading very small on other trades and only really stepping on the accelerator when he sees that that exceptional, what he considers a highly asymmetric return risk situation where he, where he can bet big, maybe, and, they, and, and in this case, he's probably had like 30 days 30 independent days where he's had returns of something like over 30% in a single day. Uh, and it's the fact that he gets those, he gets, he tends to get a couple of those really high return days in each year, or, you know, not necessarily 30, but he gets a number of, of really, let's say, double digit return days in each year. Now he can get, he gets these great track records. It's not because he's consistently making money, it's because he's very good at exploiting those situations. So that is his method. That's part of his methodology. This idea of betting larger on high confidence trades is a theme that's come up again and again. If you go back to the Druckenmiller chapter in the in uh, in uh, New Market Wizards, which was the second Wizards book, you'll see that that came in very prominently when he talked about what he learned working with Soros. And he said one of the things he learned about Soros from Soros was you have you know you have to know when to be a pick. I'm paraphrasing here, he, and he tells a story which is illustrative. He's, he talks about a time he was this is back in the days of the D-Mark before the euro, and he talks about he was very very bullish on the, on the D-Mark, and he goes into Soros and he tells them why and gives them all the reasoning, and Soros says, "Well, how big of a position do you have?" And he says, "A billion dollars," and. Soros says dismissively, a billion dollars? You call that a position? Implying that if you're that bullish, why isn't the position larger? Um, it comes in right. somebody like Thorpe, who one of the most incredible people I ever interviewed. And if I ever interviewed anybody smarter, I, I wouldn't know who it is. 
but but Thorpe, who uh, uh, originally originally was was it developing ways to beat the casinos, and was became famous not because of his trading. I mean, he, I mean, people in the industry know him for that. But before that, he became famous because he wrote this book, How to Beat the Dealer, where he basically mathematically figured out that while blackjack, like everything else the casinos play, is a negative, a negative edge game, it has to be, or else the casinos wouldn't make money. But he mathematically worked it out that it, not just, the, even if you bet correctly, you can bet correctly and you still have a negative edge. But what he understood was if you bet larger when the odds are more in your favor, namely when very few picture cards have come out, uh, and small when when a lot of picture cards have come out, that by changing the size of the bet, you could take a negative edge game and actually make it a positive edge. Which, if you use the analogy to trading, is that if you have different types of trades, and some trades are particularly reliable, uh, even if you're overall, if you average those trades, you had a slight loss or it might be slightly negative. But if you just bet biggest on those trades which had the highest confidence or the best return risk, that you could turn a negative edge into a positive edge. So I think this idea of betting larger on some trades is a theme that has come up again and again, and particularly prominently in this book. Yeah, I, I still find it very fascinating, um, their skill set to identify such trades and be patient and not to do a lot of transactions, but wait for the right risk reward. You're right. Deviating from the risk management was the wrong word. Uh, what I meant to say is, you know, it, it's maybe a change in, you know, in, in what they do day to day in terms of risk management, you know, if they risk X amount of dollars, you know, then they'll trade on the larger trade 10x all of a sudden once in a blue moon. So they do that. I think it takes a very, very skillful person to recognize such an opportunity. I definitely don't encourage it, uh, you know, to everybody to to start out that way because this is where accounts get blown up where people just fall in love with the position or they develop some sort of a conviction uh, or have some sort of another formal factor, you know, after uh, Twitter and, uh, you know, other social media aspects that cover it. Um, and, you know, Jack, you're so right about the challenge that, you know, these traders face. Um, not only in terms of what you said, in terms of quantitative analysis that it's out there, the HFTs and everything else, but really being loyal to their value system of not listening to others and blocking themselves from all the noise out there. You know, even even in, in, in spite of all my experience in the market, it's sometimes hard to shut down everything around you. It shut down, you know, to shut down the websites, you know, the Twitter and the, the, you know, other forms of media that just blast information about the market that even though, you know, inside, you know, that this is just somebody was forced to an opinion or somebody had to write something, you know, to actually really, truly ignoring it psychologically, it's a real challenge. So these traders 
do face, you know, bigger challenge than the other guys in terms of, you know, all the exposure and the opinions and everything else. Um, one thing one I'm curious about. Uh, Jason Shapiro not only ignores, doesn't ignore it, but he uses all that. that right. Like right. you see, as a, as an inverse indicator. So, um, so it can Correct. be. But, but what he does. Only, the only case where somebody's paying attention, it's in a contrarian way. And, and he, and as I understand, he also has the ability to aggregate the data through his software to have meaningful input out of it, right? So it's not that he's right. looking at one Twitter and forming an opinion. He has the ability to use collective data aggregated in some way that's presentable in some sort of a format that it can either be a contrarian or a non-contrarian. I remember that well, that guy, right? Yeah, well, that, that's Chris Camillo, who basically uses social media as his whole input. He doesn't use fundamentals. He doesn't use technical. And in his case, he's looking for early signs uh, of, of a trend before it shows up in earnings, before it shows up in anything. Uh, so, for example, uh, a number of years back where people were switching from sugared sodas to these, you know, flavored carbonated drinks, uh, like LaCroix is uh, an example, and so he would he would spot things like that because he saw a lot of chatter, uh, you know. And he would he would do this. He would monitor it in terms of large relative to other things, and uh, so he could spot these trends early. So he'd buy a stock like National Beverage Corporation before it was on anybody's radar. So in that case, it's not that he's listening to other people. There he's using the social media input to identify trends very early. I see. I see. Yeah, I've, I've seen that done, done. I've seen that done before. You're right. Um, one thing that that um, I'm curious about, you know, and, and again, to your point of, you know, that they're competing there with PhDs and algos and HFTs when and they've been doing this for quite some time. I think one of the challenges that retail face is moving from one trading environment to another, um, both in terms of belief and terms and both in terms of ability. So they believe that there could be one method for all seasons, which the method could exist, but the risk reward maybe has to change. But but also they have even if they say, okay, I know I have to change. I don't know if they know when to change and how to change it. So from these traders that you interviewed, how do you think or what, what is your perception of how did they move from one environment to another? And let me just be a little bit specific. I mean, do they are they profitable until they notice that they're not profitable and then they change it and they try to see what's going on or they know in advance, you know, if it happens just and I know there's no secret formula to it, but just your observation of how they think no, about they, changing environments. They, they don't know in advance. Um, and you will see in a number of chapters where specifically the conversation really goes, is all about how they change. So like you say, yeah, you, you can't have just like one approach and it stays static throughout time. It, 
I think again and again, you'll see this. Uh, for example, I mean, the best example is Marlon Parker, who's the one purely systematic trader. I mean, he's the ex for a guy. And that's all he, he's never traded other than systematic. Now, for the initial years he was in the business, he had these combination of systems, and they made money steadily. And then he noticed that all of a sudden there was this one year where he had like three losing months or whatever. It just stopped working. It didn't work. Uh, stopped working. And he kind of, his hypothesis was it stopped working because he's waiting to the end of the day to get data, and that's just too long for his type of approach. So he changed it. But here's the amazing thing. Okay, so he, since he's a software guy, when I was at, uh, in his home or in front of his computer, anything we talked about, he could pill up. Like he said, maybe, I don't know, hundreds of systems, but at whatever combination of systems, and he could pull up, well, here's this, and here's what it did, you know, while I was training it, and here's where, you know, he, even up to the, the current day, he knows exactly what that approach. So I asked him to bring up, you know, the approach that first got him on this road of successfully trading. And it looks like a little mountain chart. And he gets to the point where he starts losing. And then he stopped, you know, using it. Now, the extraordinary thing is, from that point in time, the system has consistently lost money every single year. So ironically, had it continued with the way he started, he would have been wiped out. Um, that, and that, that image of this, of, of something that works really well, and then works just as badly, as good as it was in those initial years, that's how bad it was after that. So if he did, and he did, in that interview, there are several points, several times where he made these changes. And if he had not made those changes, he would, he would, he would have been gone. Um, there's, uh, one of the discretionary traders talks who would, like initially, way made money was, uh, there would be major events like central bank announcement, and he'd be ready to, to trade to trade on that announcement. Um, but as as the algos got so sophisticated that they could pull out words and necessarily you know phrases, words, whatever, and could instantaneously generate generate orders that they would no human could be faster, even if he knew exactly what to do. And he had to adapt to allow for for that initial, you know, swing, and then in some cases maybe even trade against it. So he had to adapt. He had to change his methodology to accommodate the changing realities and structure of the market. Peter Brandt, who's the who's a classical chartist, <clears throat> a lot of the patterns he used no longer work, and he's the first to admit it. But he had to, he, he continued to be successful because if something stopped working, he understood it. And he just then had fewer patterns that he would look at. And it's only the ones that he still considers reliable that he uses. So again, adapt, adaption. So to be successful, you have to be able to change. find it fascinating. I just find it so interesting how these people change and and that that's because like you said they're very observant very self-conscious uh, they don't fall in love with their method um, and, and you know I'll tell you this um, 
it, it makes such a difference when you develop your own method. You know, I'll tell you in the retail world, and I don't need to tell you what, you know how the retail world behaves, but you know, they buy indicators, they buy mentorships, they buy courses. And you know, one of the problems is that because they paid for it and because they haven't developed it themselves, they really stick to it. You know, like you will find people sometimes say, I'm invested in an indicator. Well, what happened if this indicator disappeared? You were no longer going to be a trader. And I think there's just an emotional attachment to things that they have purchased and bought or people have told them that they perceive them to be successful and they might not have been. I think this part of change is knowing what to change, at what point to change it, where to change it. And because they have developed their own method, they are able to do that. That's just, you know, this is what I attribute the ability to. They were there from day one. They thought about the method, about its risk management, where do I apply it, what sizes do I trade, and they're able to change those variables because they know every room in their method. Um, as far as, if you, you've been to their houses, right? I mean, to those people's, you traveled. Tell me a little bit, interestingly, I, I want to know about their technical setup. I mean, more from how many screens did they use? How much time did they spend in front of the screen? What did you find, you know, unique about their environment? And, and you know, I'm going to ask you a question also with it. Do you find that their desk is clean? Do you find that they're very neat and meticulous people or not really? Uh, well, you know, I interviewed, not every, not everyone was in their home. In some cases, uh, some of these traders, um, they trade out of a office environment, you know, as opposed to being home. Um, uh, so I see. Just, you know, let's say uh, the broker they use will give them, you know, an, uh, an office space or whatever. And in some cases, I might have just done it in that. And I, I did some of these on the weekend, so it might have been in a conference room or something like that. Uh, where traders, they range from, you know, they might have like, I think, someone like John Neto, who's, uh, you know, you know, spent years and a lot of his own money sort of computerizing his discretionary approach in a way um, and sort of uh, will will feed him his program where he can, where there are, let's say, uh, events that are going to occur, let's say uh, a USA agriculture report, or what it could be anything. And he'll program in uh, what he expects the market to do in each case. And then the computer uh, will look for, you know, certain things and maybe keywords and will act based upon what the market is doing quicker than he could possibly do it. But in this case, he is like, he has like 10 screens or something like that. He has a bunch of screens where it's his program, various aspects of it, and other screens where he's looking at. So in this case, he has like a massive amount of separate screens going on. And so pretty intense you think something like like Peter Brand, he basically will do all his work after the Friday close. And he puts all his trades in and decides everything he's going to do for the week. And he basically says, like, he, he hasn't actually analyzed it, but his, his gut feeling is that whatever minor amount of trades he does during a week, they probably don't even, they probably end up net, net losing. And in this case, he doesn't have to watch the market at all because he's done it all over the weekend. He's put in his good cancel orders and uh, 
and you know, so you go from like massive amount of screens to no screens. Uh, so uh, it, it kind of ranges. As far as the desks, uh, I try to admit. Yeah, in most cases, you know, I don't know. I don't. I remember any general impression. In a lot of cases, I didn't do. I mean, when I interviewed people in their homes, we didn't do it. You know, like may have been sitting out in the back, you know, patio, and, you know, just talking. And that was more typical than uh, than sitting inside, certainly sitting at the desk. I I find uh, and 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 you know, obviously, I'm. Uh... You know, being uh, catering to retail traders, you know, and, and online trading, you know, everything we do online. But I would tell you that the more successful traders we have, and I talk to the less screens they have. Uh, you know, I, I found, by the way, John Nero quite fascinating because uh, he does exactly the opposite with emotions that most people are afraid. And so am yeah. I. He actually uses it as a gauge, you know, to actually tell him, um, whether, he, you know, he, he trusts his intuition, where most people's intuition misleads them, where they get excited or underexcited, uh, his intuition actually, he, he's able to gauge what he's feeling and uh, navigate through that. But I also, but as I recall, he was also in the military. So maybe it's his military background that, that helps him, right, through that. So it's not a typical guy, just he's like you said, being self-observant and self-conscious, maybe he's using that sort of intuition to navigate him through the market. So I, I, I found him to be quite uh, fascinating on that level. Yeah, well, it's, it's um, okay. So, point because it's an unusual point. Well, as far, first of all, as far as military, he's, uh, he was, I was going to say ex-Marine, but I've been told nobody's an ex-Marine, you know, once a Marine, always a Marine. But for him, the Marines basically changed him. And it's, he attributes his transition from being a, a continued life failure to being successful to his experience in the, in the Marines. So that's part of, that goes into his discipline and all that. But the emotional thing is, is interesting because in this book as well as in other books, I have made the point in drawing upon, you know, things that have come out of the interviews that Human emotions are a negative input, and it, you, one of the things that's important is to be successful if you're a discretionary trader is to um, is to try to avoid that because our human emotions, uh, as Bill Eckhart said, are so poorly attuned to successful trading that most people will do worse than random because of their emotions. Because uh, we make all all the wrong decisions based on emotion, so that's my general advice. But Neto says, you know, we're talking about this, and he says, well, why would you do that? Why would you want to get rid of emotions? And in his case, and I think he's a little bit of an exception because I don't think most people could do this. But he's kind of trained himself to recognize his own. You his natural emotional response, and to use that as as a signal that watch out. So, if like he says, if he let's say goes long gold, for example, and the market runs up, and he says, "Wow, I'm so this is trade is so good, it's going to the moon. I should buy more." If he catches himself like of that, like this, 
thinking there's no risk in the trade. This is just a layup. If he catches himself with that, that to him is a sign that's a sure sign that the market's going to correct. So he tries to gauge his own response as, as a proxy for the emotional response of other traders. And that if he gets kind of caught up in this, in this emotional, oh, this trade can't lose that thing, then that's a signal that it's going to you know, go the other way. So he uses that in that way. But it's difficult, I think, for most people to, to be able to have a self-awareness to do that. And his point is, you, the good trades, he has to feel like it's a 7 or something like that. If he feels like it's a 10, then that's a danger sign, you know, if he gets too cocky about it. Yeah, he's he, you know, I, I agree with you. It's 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 very unique to do that, you know, to actually use your intuition in the opposite way, be observant of what you think, yeah. and act quite the and act quite the opposite. I, you know, the the more knowledge I inquire through a reading, not only about um, not only about trading, but decision making in general. I try, you know, to to read books that have to do with decision making to be a better dis decision maker. I, I would tell you that everybody tells you to stay away from emotions, you know, facts, you know, in you know, facts versus intuition, you know, statistics versus you know, of a vague understanding. To do that, I think most traders. You know, to get to John's level of controlling your emotions that way, it's, it, it's very challenging. Um, talking about controlling things and everything else, tell me a little bit about, if, if you can share a little bit about the journals that these traders use. Tell me how sure. do they, what do they measure, you know, on, on, on the, and, and also the periods that they measure themselves do. Some measure themselves daily, weekly, monthly, and what do they measure and what do they watch out for? Okay, so I'll get to that in one second. Let me just clarify. Intuition, by, by emotions, I'm not talking about intuition because really good traders can trust their intuition. Um, and that's okay. different. Uh, I, I would define <laughs> intuition as as a subconscious experience. So, you know, these traders have been watching markets for decades or whatever, a decade longer and intensely, and there are a lot of experience and, uh, and things they've seen. And it's not everything necessarily you recognize, oh, this is that. But sometimes uh, you may get a, a trader may get a feeling this market is going up, and they may not be able to put their finger on why it is, but it triggers something that they've seen before, even if they can't identify it. And so intuition by itself for many traders is something that can be trusted on balance. I mean, not every trader, certainly the, you know, not a particularly skilled trader or traders without a lot of experience, intuition may be wishful thinking, but, but I'm talking about traders where their intuition is triggering something that relates to past experiences, even if they can't identify what that is. Whereas emotion is is like, uh, oh, I, I'm gonna fear of missing out. Perfect example, you know, I better buy this before it runs away, okay. before you know, before it goes even higher. You know, I've missed the market is going straight up for ten days. 
I better buy it before it goes up for another 10 days. That's emotion, you know, or, or uh, you know, things of that nature. So that's what I mean, but that's different than intuition. Now, about what these traders, uh, what these traders who keep journals and stuff like that. So literally, uh, they'll, in a number of cases, make just like every trade that they do, they will document why did they take it, uh, what happened, how did it turn out, what 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 was wrong, what mistakes did I make, what what was right, uh, you know, basically how the market react, what the idea was, how the market responded, uh, how they reacted, everything about it. Okay, so that's in one one trader's case, he not only does that. But he has a spreadsheet, an Excel spreadsheet, of like, I don't know, 30, 40 columns. And it's different aspects, different things of uh, different types of emotions. And, uh, or I'll give you just like you know, one example, like one of the columns is sugar trade. I said, what's a sugar trade? Is a sugar trade is we trade the, take the trade because without a good reason. You're just taking it because you want to trade. So if he does that, he'll put an X in. So at the end of every week, he looks at the spreadsheet and he sees which of those columns have, you know, a number of X's. And then he knows this is something he has to work on. So that's another example of the type of monitoring that they'll do. And a lot of it goes to the idea of learning from mistakes. And this is a, also, I think, a very important theme to becoming a better trader. Uh, Probably nobody made that point, or probably nobody I can think of for whom this, this concept was more important than Ray Dalio of Bridgewater. Um, he built this whole firm on the concept of learning from mistakes. That's a core part of his philosophy, is to become better, you have to learn from mistakes. Uh, and that's not only in trading. In this case, he, he points out that our educational system is flawed because it's all geared to getting the right multiple choice answer instead of training people if they make mistakes to learn learn from those mistakes and be able to grow from there. So, uh, you know, that philosophy of learning from mistakes is, is a very important concept uh, because if you're able to do that, then maybe you won't avoid the same mistake 100% of the time, but if you're aware of it, you can reduce it significantly. And reducing the mistakes you make is critical to being a, a profitable trader. Um, reflecting on your thoughts. So, so I, I, I agree with you. I agree with you on intuition versus emotion. I'm going to use the word intuition a lot more carefully in the future. Um, when, when, you know, when when I actually, because because you know the idea that I have in mind about a retail trader when he says I have an intuition that something will go up, you're right. It's just an emotional response, and 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 yes, successful people who have been like you said observing the markets for many years. Sometimes there's a pattern that's built, their brain recognizing it, but they can't verbally express what it is, and that's intuition, which is based on a lot of years of experience. Of you know, and anybody in the in in any given business, whether they're trading or somebody in real estate, can say, "Hey, listen, I don't think this property will work out." Maybe they say it because 
They've seen it so many times in the last 30 years of those things not working out, and they're able to verbalize, but they can't always explain why. So you're 100% right. To your point of mistakes, yes. Look, the majority of people that I talk to, what I tell them, I tell them, look, your trading is not done when you turn, when the market finishes. Most of the time, they'll, and, and you know this, they will finish trading and the process that they go through is thinking about what mistakes they have done and what they could have done better instead of putting it in a journal and seeing patterns and the patterns of mistakes that repeat themselves. That's where I say, wow, that is my weakness. I should really stop doing that. And this is where journals are so important so they can observe and find their own edge in their trading to say, this is what I'm doing well. This is not what I'm doing well. And again, you become a better decision maker that way. So I 100% agree with you. You know, you made very good points. I would like at this point, now I'm done with my questions, but I would like to, um, I took a few quotes from the book that I loved, that I right. thought were just fantastic. And maybe they're, and maybe they're simple, but they're just great. So let me get to the page where I put them. And okay, so here's one where Peter Brand said, he said, have a process, make a decision, write the order, place the order, live with it. Um, and then he also said, if you're playing the emotional satisfaction, you're bound to lose because what feels good is often the wrong thing to do. Your, your observation on that chapter, many, if not most traders, particularly novice traders, fail to comprehend the critical distinction between bad trades and losing trades. The two definitely not the same. Let's, uh, let's, let's, uh, discuss that for a minute, specifically with, um, uh, Peter Trent. Uh, tell me your thoughts. Yeah. So this is a mistake that many traders, particularly novice traders make. And it, it seems logical to them, but it's totally wrong thinking. So, most traders um, um, will think of, okay, winning trade, winning trades, that's what I did right, and losing trades, that's what I did wrong. And that is actually really just, just wrong thinking because the idea is if you've got a, any process you got, I don't care what it is, no matter how good it is, you're going to lose a certain percent of the time. But if you've got a trading process, that over time makes money with reasonable risk control. It's a good process. And then you follow it. You don't, you know, you don't deviate. And then you have losing trades. Those losing trades are not mistakes. They're part of the process. You're not going to win 100% of the time. So if you do everything that's part of a winning process overall, but individually on that trade you lost, that's not a mistake. That's not a bad trade. It's just, you're just not going to win 100% of the time. And if you think it's a bad trade just because you lost, that'll, that'll mess you up. On the other hand, if you are, let's say, bored and you want to do a trade because your, your approach isn't giving you any signals or you have nothing to do and you want, you know, you want to sit there and root for something and you buy a market or sell a market so you can root for it to go up or down during the day and you make money, well, that's just a lucky trade, and that day might have worked. Is that a, it might have been a winning trade, but it's a bad trade 
Because if you do that over and over, you're just going to end up losing money. So the distinction between a good trade and a bad trade is not whether you made or lost money. It's whether you, if you assuming you have a winning process, it, the question is whether you followed that process or didn't. That's the distinction. You know what? I loved it. It's a hundred percent true. That's that's what I tell traders. Just because you followed a method that you developed and it wasn't successful on day one, because a lot of them will come and say, "I did exactly what the method told me to do, and the market didn't make me money." And then they start disbelieving in the system or in their method or following anything. And then you're right. Then they resort to randomly doing something, making money, and they say, "This is so." Good point. Okay. Next point that I really liked in the book. Uh, and again, I, I mean, listen, every chapter had value. There's only so much that I could have, you know, picked, but I picked my favorite ones that I think retail traders can, um, uh, learn from Jason Shapiro. If you listen to anyone else's opinion, no matter how smart or skillful the trader might be, I, I guarantee it is going to, to end badly. So I, I particularly liked it. You can't. You can't adopt somebody else's method and risk and reward. You just can't copy their brains, right? You just can't. Right. You have to develop your own, right? Absolutely. Um, okay. All right. So, uh, so uh, to your point, there was uh, Richard Barge. To be a good trader, you have to have a high degree of self-awareness. Mental capital is the most critical aspect of trading. You have to forgive yourself for making bad decisions. It's hard. It's, uh, sorry, you have to guard against the temptation of taking impulsive trades. And then your point, which was excellent in the chapter, if you feel uncomfortable about your trading, you should seek to identify the source of the discomfort and then modify your methodology to eliminate that. Um, so you already mentioned about also in this chapter, they mentioned about the outcome outcome of a trade versus failing versus following a method. Do you want to elaborate a little bit about that point of if you feel uncomfortable about your trading, you should yeah. seek to so, identify the source. How do you do that? How do you identify the source of discomfort? Um, well, if you you have to kind of do some self introspection or or. Think about what you're doing, but if there's, it's easier to explain in terms of a of a system. Let's say you're you're the systematic trader. I mean, the same thing would apply to discretionary, but I think the example is easier for the systematic trader. Say you have a, a, a system and it works, and then um, you see that oh, here's something that happened in the market that I didn't anticipate, and I really didn't think about this before I developed rules of system. But really, if this, if this happens, there needs to be an exception. So the advice there would be, well, okay, instead of making, instead of trying to second guess your system, basically make that observation part of the system. So you you add this, you know, exception that if this and this happens, you don't take the trade, or if this and this happens, you do take a trade. So you adapt the system to to take care of what you see as a flaw. Now the same thing would apply to a discretionary trader. So you may have a certain approach, but then you you see that oh you know when this when this type of situation I find that my 
my my hit rate is maybe no not as good. These three when something I didn't think about this particular aspect, but when this exists or this circumstance exists or in this type of situation, this this approach which is typically successful on balance has a less probable chance of, of succeeding. And I really need to be aware of that. So the idea is to, to be aware of things within your methodology that seem that you, through greater observation, realize need to be modified. Thank you. Um, just a few more quotes, and we're near the end here. I really liked a guy by the name of Emrit, Emrit Saul. Um, yeah. He said, it's what you don't do that counts. Patience is the keyword. Successful trading is the art of doing nothing. It's what you don't do between the real trade opportunities that will determine your success over the long run. You can do much damage to your mental capital between trades that when the big trade turns up, you are not ready for it. Jack, let's talk for a minute about mental capital and how important it is. Um, the challenge the traders have, the taking losses after losses, it's sometimes mentally exhausting. And then, you know, how many times do you replenish an account? You know, because a lot of the times, you know, even I debate myself with myself. I'm like, how, how much is this trading thing? is built on motivation versus skill. You need both of them at the same time because if somebody is very determined to succeed, but he doesn't have the skills, maybe he has the money because, you know, he's, he's great in business or something else. But I'm always struggling to, this is where I can't tell traders, not legally and not morally. You know, legally, I obviously can't, you know, tell anybody to put beyond risk capital. But the more the moral question is, you know, how, how do you balance this, you know, of motivation that you have to keep on going? And at the same time, your mental capital, when you see things are not working out until they work out. Tell me a little bit about how, how do you think so, majority, I mean, to the best of your knowledge, I know there's no magic pill. So, so you raise a few important points here. Uh, first about the mental, mental capacity and, uh, it, it, so I'm going to deal with these separately. So that idea is that you, you get into a streak where every trader has this, where things are just not going right. You know, you make a decision, it's wrong. You know, you you uh, you get out of a trade and the market reverses right after you get out. Uh, uh, you hesitate in a trade and it works. And just everything you're doing is wrong, okay? So when you hit a streak like that, if you just keep on going, you just dig the hole deeper and deeper and and – one failure after each failure makes you kind of more off balance, you know, than previously. So you're kind of digging the hole deeper. Not only that, if you get a number of failures in a row and you feel that you're just out of whack, when a really good trade comes along, you're going to be so scorched that you're going to miss it. You're not going to take it. Your tension is not there. Your confidence is not there. So on this whole point, when things are not going right, and I've brought this up with, in every book of traders, what do they do? And typically, there's one or two things, and it comes up here in this book a number of times. Basically, the idea is, if things are not going right, just stop. 
Just stop digging the hole. Um, just stop trading. You know, stop trading could mean you you uh, you leave for the day, or maybe you take a few days off, maybe you take a few weeks off. But the idea is to stop, to break that cycle, and then to gradually come back as you get more and more confident, as you feel compelled to start trading. So that's that's one concept. The other concept about replenishing account, I'll give you some. This is not directly from traders, but this is just my my own philosophy when I advise traders, is that particularly particularly new traders or traders who haven't yet been successful. And I, I basically say, is have a starting stake. Don't make it too large, particularly if you don't have a lot of experience. And whatever that is, before you make your first trade, decide how much are you willing to lose before you say, okay, I don't have it right. The market is telling me this is not working. So let's say you start with 100K as an example. So maybe, you know, and, and I'm saying that it's 100K risk capital that, not that you can afford to lose 100K necessarily, but some of it is risk capital. And let's say that's the amount of your uh, working, working trading capital. You might say, okay, if my account goes to 80K or lower, I am just going to close everything out and go back to the drawing board and then come back in a few months if I feel I'm ready to start again. But simply doing that will keep people, what is so typical or happens so often, is traders will come in, they'll be overconfident, they don't really have the right methodology, they'll, they'll take a bunch of money, all their risk capital, and they'll keep on trading until they lose it all. And, you know, then you're out of the game. You know, like God, I'm going to say, who said it in one of my books, you know, if you, you know, if you, if you lose your chips, you can't play anymore. It's like, you have to be able to conserve enough money so you do have a second or third chance. And so many traders that I interviewed failed in the beginning that that was, you know, it's important because, you want to be able to still come back. And uh, so the advice I have is decide before you start trading what percentage of money will you, that when you hit that point, no questions asked. You just liquidate everything at the market, close the account, leave the account open without trades, and just come back when your mind is ready and you're willing to, to try it again. But that is really... It's a very useful rule because it keeps you from losing a lot of money, you know, at one time. It keeps you potentially in the game. And I myself am not a, uh, you know, trading for me is just a, a sideline. I, I don't trade all the time. Sometimes I'm trading every day. Sometimes I don't trade at all. Depends what else is going on in my life, how confident I feel, if I want to trade. But let's say, let's say, you know, what happened was happened to me typically Maybe I make money and then I start losing it back. I'll say, okay, things are, things are not going well. I'll close the account for now and I'll come back at another time. But whenever I do come back, I basically think to myself, I'm willing to lose X dollars. And if I lose that amount, I'm going to stop. And that sort of prevents that. It sort of gives you an edge because your upside is open-ended and your downside is very limited. So it's like a poker player who uh, you put in the money for the kitty, and if you get a lousy hand, you'll just, okay, you lost that small amount. You're not going to keep staying in the hand 
and hope your cards come out better. So you you you, you control your downside, and uh, but it but you have the possibility of a much larger upside. So I would not encourage people to keep replenishing accounts. Or on the opposite, I would tell them to limit the amount they're willing to lose and then stop and then come back at another point. I, I, I agree with you 100%. The one thing I would add to that um, is I, I tell every trader to start trading at the level of comfort that he can handle psychologically the fluctuations in his account. The majority of people today, you know, obviously with trading being gamified, what it has done is young traders are asking for the most amount of leverage they can use for day trading. N not only, you know, to say that le leverage is a, is a double-edged sword, for 90% of the people, it's just one direction. It's, it's, they don't know how to trade it in terms of risk reward like a professional trader. So what they do is that they gear up in the initial uh, trading career to the point that they think this is how it's done. And one thing to alleviate, you know, this replenishing and, and go through this somehow of a mental suffering process because they want to succeed and they can't. It just, it's exhausting at some point. I always tell them, well, start at the level where the fluctuations do not only not, not only affect your account in a bad way from a risk reward, but mentally you can handle and withstand it. And, and that helps them. And, and, and I think the people that I've told it to, you know, just to reduce gear a little bit, reduce the leverage, spe specifically, you know, in, in, in our arena of futures trading, I think it helps a lot. Um, so next sentence, which I love, doesn't require, you know, a lot of analysis. It's from uh, Deljit, Deljit Dawal. He says, always make sure your stop is set at a point that disapproves your market hypothesis. So really, I think that's been discussed before. This is where you set your stops, where the market tells you that the hypothesis is wrong, not necessarily your personal comfort, because your personal comfort has nothing to do with the market, right? Yeah, the market doesn't care. Market doesn't care. Last two quotes, and they are from Chris Camillo, which they're basic, but they're so crucial. Don't try to change who you are to match some perception you might have about what professional traders do on Wall Street. And the second one was, don't even listen to anyone. Don't uh, ever listen to anyone when you are in a position. And to that point, I would say, you know, yes, a lot of traders behave based on perception how some other traders on Wall Street do it. And I found that on Wall Street, what I try to tell people you know, big banks, for example, you know, yes, they have proprietary desks, but most of the time they're in the business of selling products, you know, whether it's in the form of derivative or insurance, or this is where the revenue, you know, is coming from. But a lot of people don't understand the structure. So a lot of the people do, again, revert to high leverage. They think that they know how Wall Street behaves. And based on that perception, kind of a, of a shadow, they try to figure out how the real figure is acting. So I think that would lead 
to many mistakes. Um, Jack, I'm out of questions. And I wanted to thank you very much for your time. I truly sure. think that, you know, there's, you're one of the only people that really in this industry that shares information, again, in a very transparent way. I wish that some of those traders in the book, and I, I, and I know they want to stay in their isolated world, but I, I just wish, you know, that they had a way to convey more of what they do and share with the world, you know, from a practical experience. Um, I know that uh, Peter Brand does it. Um, yeah, he does. You know, he's actually one of the only guys out there that actually has a track record that does teach people. Majority of people who are successful in trading don't teach. And, and quite the opposite, majority of people who teach, that's where their income is at uh, from teaching. Yeah. So I, I I get it. So I, I thank you at least for this uh, uh, advice. So again, to everybody out there, you know, unknown market wizards, go and get it. You know, worth a read five times at least and listening to it, obviously, on, um, on those apps on the phone. Jack, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, until your uh, new market wizards book, you know, until next time. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Optimist Futures podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. You can also find us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Google Plus, all under the username Optimist Futures. If you have any questions, feel free to send us an email to support at optimistfutures.com or give us a call directly at 561-367-8686 or toll free at 1-800-771-6748. Once again, thank you for listening to the Optimist Futures podcast. Please remember that this matter should be viewed as a solicitation to trade. Trading futures and options involves substantial risk of loss and is not suitable for all investors. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results. You should therefore carefully consider whether such trading is suitable for you in light of your financial condition. Optimist Futures LLC is not affiliated with, nor does it endorse any trading system, methodologies, newsletter, or similar service. We urge you to conduct your own due diligence.